Before we consider today's scripture reading and today's message, I want to say words of gratitude and thanksgiving just to everyone who's making church happen this morning. Thanks to everyone who's teaching and children and youth. Thanks to all the folks on our greeting and hospitality theme. Thanks to everyone on the tech team for connecting us here uh, in Fifth Street, also live all over the place. Folks who are watching on the app or the website, catching up later on on the podcast or YouTube, all that counts. So thankful that you're with us today. I uh, also want to thank the band, as always, for leading us. And I specifically want to thank Clint for bringing back a little bit of God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. I'm a big fan of call and response in church, if y'all didn't know that. I'm always looking for a chance to talk. Um, My favorite one, though, is when whoever's up front, the preacher or someone else, says, won't he do it? And then everybody else says, yes, he will. But here's the thing. You can't say it like it's not good news. So I want to try it. I've never tried it here before. I'm going to try it. Won't he do it? Won't he do it? Oh, come on. We're in church now. Watch out. Be careful. Everyone, good morning. My name is Lance Marshall. I'm the senior pastor here at the First United Methodist Church of Fort Worth. And thinking about this scripture and and reflecting on it over the course of the week, I had a flashback to Little League Baseball in junior high. That's what this scripture made me think about. I played Little League Baseball all throughout elementary school in sixth grade before the select soccer industrial complex just sucked everything else out of our life. And uh, anybody else? (laughs) Um, so I played baseball. That was my last year playing baseball. It was a really fun year. I loved to pitch. I was uh, a little, base, little league pitcher. I just loved it and uh, had a great time playing. And I remember that year, um, we had an extra coach. We had three coaches that year. My dad was one of them even. We had all these coaches. It was a great year, a lot of fun. And I'll never forget a kid that was on my team that played that year. Uh, his name was Adam, but of course it wasn't Adam. You guys know how this works. Um, I'll call him Adam, and Adam joined the team. He's another six-year-old, or sixth grader, excuse me. And at this point, a lot of us have been playing in and throughout the league, you know, since, you know, t-ball days, on and off. And Adam joins our team, and it is really apparent really quickly that Adam has never played baseball before. In fact, it is very clear that Adam has never done baseball-adjacent things in his life. I mean, and we can forget, like, baseball skills, like fielding or hitting or throwing, and we can forget baseball knowledge, like which direction to run or, like, what a ball or strike was. If my memory serves correctly, the beginning of the season, it was like a 50-50 proposition, like what hand goes in the glove, which end of the bat do you hold, right? Adam was just new to baseball. He had never played before, and, you know, God bless him for signing up and for playing. It was, I'm really glad that he did, and this is rec league baseball right? It's just all about having fun. And I'll remember very quickly early on in that season, we'd be having practice and stuff like that, right? We're going through our drills and things like that. And for like the first many, many weeks, one of the coaches would just be with Adam off to the side. And they would just be with Adam. I mean, going over all the basics, right? I mean, how to use your glove, how to catch, how to throw, uh, little soft grounders, you know, soft toss into the fence, all those little things to build up his skills. They were putting incredible, incredible amounts of time and energy into Adam. There was everyone else in the team run by the coach, and then just like a massive amount given just to Adam right? And he was a good kid. I remember he was fun and nice and worked hard, and so I can totally see how it was easy for the coaches uh, to do that. And over the course of the year, he like picked it up pretty quick, and I'll never forget. I don't remember one thing that I did in that baseball season, right? Sixth grade. I'm sure I threw a bunch of no-hitters. Can't even remember. But 
No, I don't remember one thing that I did in baseball that year, but I remember at the end of that season, Adam hit a home run. You know, and one of those like little league home runs, right? Where there's no like, you're just, you're just trucking it and you, you make it all around. And have you ever seen like 15 kids on the bench go nuts and the coaches go nuts? I mean, sunflower seeds everywhere, right? I've never been so happy at a sporting event as when Adam got that home run, right? Kid didn't know which end of the bat to hold. In the beginning of the year, the end of the year does that, right? And so think about that. Those dads, those coaches who put all of that time and energy into Adam, did they do it because he earned it? Right? Did they do it because that was their strategy to us winning our little league trophy? No, they did it because they were kind and they were good and he needed it. Not so that he could be the world's best baseball player, right? But so that he, a young person who's obviously stepping outside of their comfort zone, can have a wonderful life experience and grow in confidence and joy. They did that, not because he earned it, but because he needed it. And it's so interesting to think about that in all the time, in all the energy, in all the focus that they put in. Did he earn it? No. Was it equal that they did that for him? No, not at all. He got 10, 50 times more coaching and attention than any other kid did. Was it fair that they did that for him? I mean... The rest of us got coaching, right? As much as could be expected in a little league team. But was it good? Was it good that those coaches did that for that kid when he needed it? Was it equal? No. Was it fair? Maybe. But was it good? Now, we all know that uh, youth athletics is an opportunity for some of the best of human personality traits and characteristics to show up. <laughs> Y'all are way ahead of me. <laughs> and <laughs> youth athletics is also a time for some of our growing edges to present themselves, particularly amongst the adults engaged. And imagine if some other parent Right? And let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they had a really hard week, something's really struggling in their life. But let's say at the end of the year, some other parent snaps and says, why does Adam get all the attention? Why does Adam get all the one-on-one -on -one training? Why does Adam get all the focus? We've been here the whole time. We've been here for years. We've never received anything like that that is not fair. And it's certainly not equal. Well, first off, rude. <laughs> Second off, they've got a point. If you're looking at it through a certain lens, right? But it's pretty clear that any adult who saw those coaches spending all that time with that kid and looked at that as unfair to everybody else, I mean, it's pretty clear they're just missing the whole point of what's going on, aren't they? This is a tough scripture reading, to be honest with you, uh, because this scripture reading, the way most of us read it and interpret it and the way that it hits us, has us acting like that parent. It has us looking at what's happened in this scripture, and it has us going, well, that's not fair. That's not equal. That's not right. Oof. 
And that's a tough way to react. In a sermon series right now for Lent, uh, we're focused on these teachings of Jesus that can sometimes be a little hard to hear or they can sometimes put us in an uncomfortable place. And we've called the sermon series Tough Love because the things that Jesus says can sometimes be tough to hear or they can sometimes raise a response that's tough in us, but ultimately everything that he's teaching, everything that he's saying, everything that he's doing is ultimately about love, about drawing us into the kind of life that we're made to have, the kind of life that we're blessed to lead, the kind of life that he makes possible for us if we were to yet receive it. And this is one of those scripture readings. And I want to go a little bit off track here I want to give you a little bit of an understanding of some of the things behind the things that are impacting not only how we read this scripture, not only how we understand our relationship with God, but things that just color our entire experience of being alive. And one of those is the concept of scarcity. We live hardwired into our DNA with the concept of scarcity. The concept that there's just not enough of something to go around. That makes sense in our three-dimensional lives, right? We're always looking for food and for water and for resources and shelter, etc. And we're just hardwired in our bones to believe that there is not enough. This is played into over and over again in our lives by the people who want us to buy things or acquire things. We're always told, you know, limited time offer, while supplies last, etc., etc., and we start looking at the people who've been successful in acquiring more and stockpiling more and having more as more successful, maybe more worthy or as more good. That's something that's wired into us with the scarcity mindset. But the truth is, when people have a scarcity mindset, it starts to lead them to act in some really interesting ways. Does anybody here uh, remember what happened when the Taylor Swift concert tickets came out a couple months ago? So for those of you who aren't aware, uh, Taylor Swift is a human female um, <laughs> vocalist, singer-songwriter who comes up with some incredibly catchy tunes. I am not too cool to admit it. Uh, and so she, her concert series was coming out, and she's playing in arenas, right, all over the world, hundreds of thousands of tickets available, but the problem is there's millions of people who want to go to a Taylor Swift concert. And so were any of y'all the ones that were in the line doing the thing? Any of you? You're nodding but not raising your hand. Boo! Let everyone see. If, and the people, you know, someone that I work really closely with in my office, they were online. And what did you have to do, right? I mean, you had to have a special kind of credit card to be eligible. You had to get online. You had to pound refresh on your browser, right? And in a world where there's not enough to go around, people ended up suing. People who weren't able to access those tickets are suing because that's not fair, that's not equal, that's not right. And all of that is rooted in the reality of scarcity. Imagine if there was an infinite amount of Taylor Swift to go around. If there was an infinite amount of tickets, if you and everyone who wanted to know and wanted to go and be a part of it was guaranteed to have exactly as much as they needed, then there would be no need for a lawsuit for a fight, for anger, or anything like that. The scarcity mindset also takes us to look pretty quickly into things like earning or deserving, right? Because when something is scarce, and we need to figure out how it's going to be allocated, we need that allocation to be fair. If something is scarce, like how much water we can all get, or food we can all get, etc., then we need it to be fair. And we decide how much is fair based on what people have done to earn it. And what people have done to earn it gets rooted to what they've done to uh, achieve it, to make it possible. Think about this in lights of a job, right? 
Say that you're in a career and there's a position that's available for you to move up in responsibility and in compensation and you desire to do so, right? And yet you're not the only one who desires that. Well, intrinsically, the right, only right thing to do is to go to the person who's done the most to earn it, to deserve it, right? Who's KPI'd the best. I don't even know what that means, but some of y'all do, right? Who's achieved it, who's earned it, etc. This is just wired into us. And anything that breaks that contract of who's done the most to earn it then immediately cast the whole system in doubt, right? If you work for an organization, but the jobs and the resources and the opportunities and the advancement and the employment is not being handed out based on who's done the most to deserve it, who's done the most to earn it, then it calls the validity of the entire organization into question, right? I bring up this concept of scarcity. And then how scarcity works in terms to the idea of what's equal and then what's deserved and what's earned and what's fair. Because this is one of the primary things about which Jesus is trying to change our minds. He's trying to change our hearts. He's trying to change the way that we view the world. Because the core truth is, is that our experience of God's love, which we call God's grace, the real transforming power and presence in our life, is not based on anything that we've done to earn it. The babies that are baptized at this altar receive that sign and inclusion, join in that sacrament of the church, not based not on anything that they've done, but because of who God is and what God has done. And this is tricky, right? I mean, I talk with y'all a lot, and the idea of unearned love, unmerited love, Unearned grace is one of the hardest things that we as a community have at time accepting. I can say this through thousands of hours of conversations with you. Problem comes when people who desire to love and know God can't shake loose of this idea of needing to earn it somehow. When people think that, yeah, yeah, God loves me, but I have to earn it. Yeah, yeah, God's good, but I have to deserve it. In my experience, that leads them down one of two paths. One, constantly judging themselves, trying to be pure enough, trying to be holy enough, trying to be moral enough, trying to be righteous enough, trying to serve enough, give enough, over and over and over again, always considering themselves to not yet reach that threshold, and in doing so, unintentionally, driving a greater and greater and greater rift between themselves and the God that's trying to receive them, because they just can't ever believe that they've deserved it. Or the idea that you need to somehow earn God's love, earn God's grace, drives people down pathways of judging and excluding and condemning others. See, this is how I'm holy enough. I cut those people out. See, this is how I'm good enough. I told those people no. See, this is how I earned your love, Jesus, because I kept every rule perfectly in every way, no matter who it hurt and what circumstance. If we tie the concept of scarcity and earning into receiving the divine love that Christ has come to proclaim, well, then we just miss the whole point of what's going on. To try to help us understand that, Jesus tells us a parable, a story, rooted in the world in which all of these people lived, and so they would have been able to understand it. Imagine that the man owns a vineyard, he says, and it's harvest season, so he hires workers to go out and work in his vineyard. The workday starts at six o'clock in the morning. So he goes out even earlier. He finds the people that are available in the appointed time and place. He hires them. He sends them out to the fields. If you work, I'll give you a fair day's wage. That's what a denarius is. 
And then people do so. But then he goes out again three hours later. And he goes out again a few hours later. And he goes out again a few hours later and he hires more. And he goes back at 5 o'clock or the 11th hour. He goes out at the 11th hour and hires more people yet still. And one of the things that the original audience would have uh, known intrinsically hearing the story that we might miss today is that nobody does that. Nobody does that. What a landowner does is go out and hire all the people that they need and then go back and they do the work. They don't go hire any more workers because the landowner doesn't need any more workers. This landowner keeps going out and hiring more people not because he needs it, but because they do. Do you see? And more importantly, the original audience that would have seen something like this play out over and over and over again in their lives, they know how people getting picked for the job works. Who gets picked first? If you have a field that needs to be worked and cleaned for harvest and your family's wealth and your family's well-being depends on who does the most and achieves the most, who are you going to hire first? The strong bodies, the healthy bodies, the experienced workers, the ones you've seen before and know that you can trust, right? That's who gets hired first. Who gets left unpicked? The weaker ones, the smaller ones, the less desirable ones, the new in towns, the one who has a brother or a cousin who's fallen into disrepute. These people don't get picked. They don't get a chance. They don't even get the opportunity to go and work. And so when the landowner goes back over and over and over again, he's doing it not because he needs it, but because they do. And the people who keep needing it are the people who are more and more and more desperate. And he keeps showing up for them. That's who God is, Jesus says. And it's so funny, you know, when we read this parable, let's be honest, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because y'all are no fun and you never do. <laughs> How many of y'all hear that parable and you immediately associate yourself with the person who's been working all day long? You immediately associate yourself. I've been working all day long, I only get this and someone else does too. And you immediately just, ugh, you feel that feeling, right? I love the, uh, the literal translation of the Greek when it says, um, do you resent me because I'm generous? That's how it gets translated into English. The more literal one-for-one -one translation is, is your eye evil because I am good? That's what God asks. Are you so soaked up with pride or with doubt or with anger or with greed that because I'm good, it's gotten you sideways? How many of us hear that text and unintentionally we put ourselves in that place? My question is, what makes you think that that's you in that story? Imagine this story. Imagine this story. And this is a story about you. Fast forward some time. Some disaster has happened, some unforeseen thing. 
And however it is that you are able to provide for yourself today, that's no longer there. If it's passive income, if it's your white collar job, if it's your skilled trade, whatever that is, that's gone. You don't have it anymore. And the only way that you, the actual you I'm talking to online or in person, the only way that you can actually try to provide a meager subsistence existence is with the labor that you provide with your back and with your hands if you're lucky enough to get someone to hire you. So imagine you wake up with another day and you have no idea where that source of income is going to go get come from and it's 5 a.m. and it's time to head to the marketplace and you can't because you are responsible for other people and they're sick and they will die without the medicines that will keep them alive and you're the only one that can do it. So instead of heading to the marketplace, you head out on a five hour journey to go get them the medicines they need and you wait in the midst of an inefficient system to finally get them and then you walk back because they needed to survive one more day and it's noon and it's time for you to go out and try to get some work but you can't because you're also responsible for someone else's children. And these children desperately need help and you can't leave them alone because they have nobody else. So you're watching them until three, until someone else can come and finally watch these kids. And then they do and it's three o'clock and it's now time for you to head off to try to find some way to work. But do you get there immediately? No. Because in your poverty, you are not able to afford living anywhere near the place where actual work can come from. You live way off in the distance, and the only way you have to get there is to walk. But guess what? You're not 17 anymore, and your body hurts, and it aches, and you have weaknesses, and you have injuries, and you have illnesses, and you are finally able to drag yourself to the place where you can try to find a way to support yourself and the people whom you love at five o'clock. And by the grace of God, somehow, for some reason, there is someone still there and still hiring. And so they pick you up, and they take you, and with your meager resources and abilities and skills, they put you to work, and you in that day get in one hour of work for them. And then the time comes to receive your pay, and you stand in front of the line, and in a day which has been lost entirely to caring for others, to watching over for others, to barely scraping by, to living in the midst of your own pain and difficulty, you look that landowner in the eyes and you get a full day's wage. That's who God is. And if anybody else who was picked first and has been working all day complains about that or is angry about that or is upset about that, then they are missing the point of what is happening here. Is it equal? No. Is it fair? They got what was promised to them. But is it good? God is good all the time. Lent is a time for you to recognize that you are that 11th hour worker and God is good to you. Let's pray. Jesus, free us from this scarcity mindset. Free us from this belief that there's not enough 
love. There's not enough grace. There's not enough hope to go around. Free us from thinking that it's dependent on what we earn or achieve or make or do. Help us to instead see the God who is good. The God who reaches out, who turns this world upside down, says it's the last that are first in my kingdom. Help us to look past our own pride or arrogance that makes us always want to count what others have and help us instead rejoice in the fact that there's more than enough goodness to go around. And Christ, help us to not only to believe it and to live it, but to share it in the light of your good news. And it's in your name that we trust and that together we pray the words that you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.